Grammar Girl here. In today's show, I'm going to try a slightly different format to see how it works. First, you'll get a quick and dirty tip about backward versus backwards. Then I'm going to tell you about my trip to England a few weeks ago and all the cool language-related stuff I saw and heard. And finally, at the very end, I'm going to finish with a tidbit about why we call it Earl Grey Tea and whether it's spelled gray with an E or gray with an A. This week's quick and dirty tip is about backward versus backwards because the question of which word to use just came up internally among our editors. These words can be adjectives and adverbs. So you can say, Squiggly often forgets to move backward when Aardvark is casting. That's using backward as an adverb. And you can say, Grammar Girl wishes her Xbox games had backward compatibility. That's using backward as an adjective. Both backward and backwards are correct, but most sources say that when you're using the word as an adverb, backward is standard in American English, and backwards is standard in British English. The way I remember the difference is to think that Americans like shortcuts. For example, I'm willing to bet that we eat in our cars more than British people eat in their cars. So think about how Americans like shortcuts, and think about how we lopped the S off backwards to make it shorter. In the U.S., we use the shorter word, backward. If you choose to use backwards in the United States, it's not wrong, but it may look a little weird to people. It's like spelling color with a U. It draws attention to itself and could be distracting for American readers. And if you're using British English, it's typically backwards as an adverb and backward as an adjective. So you have two things to remember. That was your quick and dirty tip. Although it's been raining where I live, I'm pretty sure it's still summer. So if you're looking for a way to keep your kids or yourself entertained, try my iOS game Grammar Pop. It's simple but fun. You match words with their part of speech. It's called Grammar Pop, and it's in the Apple App Store. A few weeks ago, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking at a small conference in Cambridge in the UK that was entirely about usage guides. It was called Bridging the Unbridgeable. I spoke about what it's like to answer language questions on the internet and the changes I've seen over the eight years that I've been Grammar Girl. Two of the biggest changes I've seen are the move to shorter articles on the web, and even more so the increasing importance of images. I can't participate on Instagram or Pinterest without an image, and I'm finding it's also important to have images when I post on Tumblr and Facebook. But I worry about things seeming overly simple when I make images. For example, I recently made an image to go with my post about the difference between the words amount and number, but the image presents the difference in a more simplistic way than the article, and I know many people won't click through to the article, so I worry about that and try to think about ways to cram subtlety into images. The conference was fascinating. There were presentations from young linguists who were doing studies about which peeves people hate more, Famous linguists I've wanted to meet for years, such as Jeffrey Pullum and David Crystal, writers of popular usage books, and the author of the BBC News Style Guide. I'll put a link to all the abstracts from the conference in the transcript of this podcast, which you can find at quickanddirtytips.com, though you may want to read the abstracts because it was a cool conference. Almost immediately after we got to Heathrow Airport, I was charmed by all the language differences. Instead of reading exit, the signs read way out. On the trains, the announcer tells you to alight instead of get off or exit. 
and in the grocery store, Frosted Flakes were called Frosties. To prepare for a bit of tourism after the conference, I bought David and Hillary Crystal's book, Wordsmiths and Warriors, The English Language Tourist's Guide to Britain, which was great for helping me narrow down the things we'd see since we had only about two days in London. If you ever take a trip to the UK, I recommend the book. Our first stop was the British Museum, and because of the Crystal's book, I knew that I wanted to immediately head to Room 41, which has European artifacts from about 300 to 1100 AD, so the time from the beginnings of Old English up to about the Norman invasion, which I'll talk about more in a minute. In that room, they used to have a metal circle, maybe a coin or an ornament, that, according to Crystal, has the oldest sentence ever found written in Old English, technically Anglo-Frisian. It's written in runes instead of the letters we use today, and archaeologists believe it's from between 450 and 480 A.D. We looked for it for about an hour and finally asked, and unfortunately it's no longer on display, but I'll put a link to the page about it from the British Museum website, and a video of David Crystal at the British Museum talking about the piece when it was still on display. We weren't bored while we were searching, though. The room had plenty of other amazing artifacts. Writing was a big deal in the monasteries, and I have pictures of alphabet tiles made in a monastery and wax seals from a monastery that would have been used on legal documents. Then we headed downstairs to see the Rosetta Stone, which seems to be one of the museum's most famous items. It's a big piece of granite, bigger than I expected. It's 112 centimeters, so almost four feet tall, that contains the same text in Greek, Demotic, and most important hieroglyphics. Until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, modern people couldn't understand hieroglyphics. It was mobbed, and the variety of Rosetta Stone items you can buy in the museum gift store is amazing. I think they even had a squeezy stress ball shaped like the Rosetta Stone. Before I saw the real thing, I wondered whether it would be cool or if I'd just think, yeah, it's a big stone, but it was cool. The next day, we headed to Westminster Abbey in Poets' Corner, where you can see graves and tributes to an overwhelming number of famous authors. Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, Edmund Spencer, Charles Dickens, Samuel Johnson of dictionary fame, and John Dryden, who's often credited with making up the rule that you shouldn't end a sentence with a preposition. The list goes on and on, and I confess that it was actually a bit numbing. But there was one interesting nugget from the audio tour. Geoffrey Chaucer is also buried there, but he wasn't buried there because of his literary fame. He was originally buried in the Abbey because he was clerk of works to the Palace of Westminster. More than 150 years later, when he was more famous, they upgraded his tomb. One of the things on the Abbey grounds that you'd miss if you hadn't read the Crystal's book is a stained-glass window in St. Margaret's Church, a much smaller church you pass as you walk up to the abbey. The window, about halfway up the left side of the church, honors William Caxton, the first person to bring the printing press to England, and therefore he made decisions while publishing that helped begin the process of standardizing English. Caxton operated near the abbey, probably because he was likely to get printing business from the government offices and courts in the area and the marker says that he worshipped at St. Margaret's. Caxton may not be as well-known as the writers in Poet's Corner, but his contributions to English were significant. 
It was also Caxton who chose to publish Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. It was one of the first books he printed. My final story is about the Tower of London, which for me was the highlight of the trip because the small castle at the center of the Tower of London, called the White Tower, was built by William the Duke of Normandy, better known as William the Conqueror, after he defeated King Harold II in the Battle of Hastings during the Norman invasion in 1066. I never learned about the Norman invasion in school, but it was one of the most important events in the history of English. After the Normans took over England, the official language became French for hundreds of years, and this was the time when hordes of French words entered the English language, especially words related to upper-class life, such as words about government and cooking. To establish his power, William the Conqueror built lots and lots of castles, and the first was the White Tower. It was meant to shock and awe the locals to show them who was in charge and keep them in submission, and it's still impressive today. The castle was the symbol of power of the people who changed English. It was also used as an armory, and inside all sorts of weapons and armor are on display, but they also have painted wooden heads of a long line of kings, including William the Conqueror, so you can actually see what he looked like. I've read about these things in history books, but seeing the castle and looking at a life-size head of William the Conqueror made it all seem much more real. So that was my trip, and I'll have pictures on quick and dirty tips of almost everything I talked about and links to the official pages with more information from the Tower of London and Westminster Abbey and the British Museum. I had been thinking of trying to lead a tour to these places, but we found that we could barely manage taking care of ourselves in a foreign country, so that isn't going to happen. But I do recommend that any language lover who's visiting the UK get David and Hillary Crystal's book, Wordsmiths and Warriors. Finally, with this new format, I'm going to end with a tidbit about Earl Grey. So I love a good Earl Grey tea, and believe me, stick with the tea in England. Do not try the coffee. Most of the time it was instant. Maybe I just went to the wrong places. But the lovely Earl Grey tea is named after Charles Grey, 2nd Earl of Grey, who was the British Prime Minister from 1830 to 1834, and supposedly received a gift of black tea flavored with oil of bergamot. It's spelled with an E, G-R-E-Y, because that was his name, but is also the way the color is spelled in British English. I remember that by associating the E with England. We normally spell gray with an A in the United States, and I remember that by associating the A with America. So when you're spelling gray, remember to use E in England and A in America. And that was your tidbit. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find hundreds of Grammar Girl articles at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time.
Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.